Hope you've got your Bible with you this morning. You can open it up to Acts chapter 2. I said last week we were going to finish the chapter this week, but we're not. So if you were really pumped about finishing chapter 2, I'm sorry to disappoint you. Uh, here's here's kind of the recap so far. The Spirit's moving. That's it. That's it. The Spirit is moving. We see it clearly. We see uh, before Peter even preaches, the tongues of fire are there. The sound like a mighty rushing wind is there. People are speaking in foreign languages they didn't know how to speak before. The Spirit is moving. And then Peter gets up and he begins to explain what's going on and to preach and Repentance is preached and people believe and are baptized and are given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then like 3,000 people are added to the church. That's an explosion of church growth, of the Spirit, the effects of the spirits moving. And it just goes to show that God builds His church by His Word. 2023, September I get it right. September 2023 is the same way. It's the same thing. God builds his church by his word. The church of God, the body of Christ, was not a last minute bailout to a plan that went awry. It's not God's plan B. The church is God's plan. Period. This is one of the major reasons that you won't find me wringing my hands over the state of the church today. Now, do I want the church to represent Jesus in a more direct and substantial way? Yeah. I think we can do a better job of that as a church as a whole. Do I desire the body of Christ to lead the way in caring for the least of these? For sure, we ought to. Jesus is pretty clear about those things. But I'm not worried about the future of the church because the future of the church doesn't rest in my hands. The future of the church rests in the hands of the one who designed it, who created it, and the one who is faithful even when we are not. Now, this doesn't in any way lessen the mandate that we have on us as the church, as Christians, to go and disciple, to go with the gospel. But I just, I hope to maybe reassure you, because as I was going through Bible college and in the 20 years here since, I've seen lots of books written about the state of the church, and a lot of them are negative. And I get it. I understand why. There's reason for concern in some areas, that's for sure. But God's the designer. God's the sustainer of the church. So I just want to reassure you that the church is the way it is because God designed it for his wisdom to be demonstrated to the world. This is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3. He says that God designed the church to be basically his witness to the world and to the spiritual forces. Okay, this is what he says. This was according to the eternal purpose that God has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is all part of God's plan. The church is God's plan. Now, this is really important for us to understand and remember as we go about making disciples because the Christian faith that God has given believers is personal, but it's not private. You've probably heard somebody say that, maybe me before. Our faith is personal, but it's not private. God never saved a person to go and to be a recluse on a mountain and never talk to anyone about the saving work that he's done in their life. 
God has saved us, as Paul puts it, out of darkness into light. And guess what? If there's a bunch of people in that light, you're with them. You're their family, in fact. It's not private. We're not called to keep it to ourselves. God calls and saves people to be part of his family. And that family, you guessed it, is called the church. Paul reminds Titus that the great God and Savior Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's in Titus chapter 2. Guys, Jesus is saving a people for himself. And by people, I don't mean people's individual. We mean people as a group. Too often, people misunderstand the purpose of the church. Too often, the church misrepresents what its purpose really is. So what's the church supposed to be? What is the church supposed to do? Well, these are questions that resonate with you or you're curious about. I have good news for you. Our text today explains these things to a very large degree. Those are important questions. They deserve thoughtful answers. What's the church supposed to be? What are we supposed to do? They deserve biblical answers. And so we're going to hear some some of those answers together today. We're going to look just at chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. I'm sorry, 42 through 44 today. And then we'll... Our aim is to tackle the end of it next week. Chapter 2, verse 42 through 44. Read it with me, and then uh, we'll ask the Lord's blessing on our time. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Let's pray. Lord, as we see the Spirit move in Acts chapter 2, we see that it's prompted by the preaching of your word. It's necessitated on the moving of the Spirit. But these things call Christians to action, to do something. And we're, we're going to see this today and next week, and, and we'll understand, hopefully, Lord, by your grace, what it means that the church is supposed to be and do. And I realize, Lord, that many who are here, myself included, have been going to church for a while. And maybe we have an idea of what it ought to be and ought to look like and what ought to happen. And maybe, Lord, we need some readjustment. Maybe I need some readjustment. And so we pray that your word instructs us today. Not tradition, not what other churches in our area are doing, nothing like that. But instead, your spirit who is with us, who is moving amongst us, guides us to truth in this area. We know and hope and pray that it will be for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. So again, the Spirit is moving here in a way that had not been seen ever previously. So we can't fully do this, but kind of just put yourself in, in that place for a moment in the church. That church looked a lot different than what we're sitting in now. There was a temple, sure, and, and they gather there to some degree, but it looked a lot different. Just put yourself in that moment and in that time and in that place. 
thousands of people. So there are around 120-ish people who kind of were dedicated to Jesus, who saw and were part of the church. And now you've got 3,000 people being added to the church. That, uh, that affects the dynamic of a group significantly, right? You know, um, we've got some new moms and dads. When you have a kid, it affects the dynamic of your household. And for the, for the Gronefelds, you, you got a double dose of that right away. Okay, you got two kids at once affecting the dynamic of your household. But just adding one person in, adding one family to the church can really change things, right? We got 3,000 people. All now, like, waiting for instruction. What do we do now? Well, Peter said, repent, be baptized. That happened. They're there. Now what do we do? They were eager. They were excited. Put yourself there. What was the result of of this? Well, repentance led to baptism, right? What was the result of all of these things? Well, I think we see here in just verse 42 some big results. The result of, of this great salvation in their lives was a change of devotion. I just wanted to, to settle there for just a moment. A change of devotion. Because we're devoted to a lot of things, aren't we? We're rightly devoted to family. We're rightly devoted to uh, a lot of different things. Okay, hard work, all of that. Um, but unfortunately, our hearts get wrapped in devoting themselves to stuff that we probably shouldn't be, right? Being preoccupied too much with the things of this world and the comforts of, of our surroundings here. What happened in these early believers was that when Jesus came in and changed them, the Spirit moved in their hearts and lives and saved them, their devotions changed. The things that they loved changed, which of course then affected the things that they spent their time doing. Notice in verse 42, it says they were now devoted to several different things. Four, as, as I can understand them, the apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, prayer. So whatever identified their lives before this, now they spent their time differently. And we see this. Now, the word devoted means to continue steadfastly. And I think the King James Version uses that word, steadfastly. Okay, it means to persist in something. It means to be diligent in, to adhere closely to, to attend to continually. So what happened in these new believers in Jerusalem during Pentecost, I want to point out, it wasn't a one-time thing. Okay? Uh, they didn't just... Profess faith, get dunked, give a little bit of their money to the church, and then go about life as normal. Their devotions changed. Their lifestyle changed. In fact, their devotion to these things wasn't just a one-and-done experience. It was a lifestyle. The core of what they loved and were devoted to changed. Verse 43 mentions that many signs and wonders were done at this time through the apostles. I, I believe that these displays of the Spirit and His power were serving the message that the disciples were preaching. The signs and wonders validated the teaching and gave it authority. Now, I do think it's interesting that signs and wonders aren't included in the things that they persisted in regularly. Now, were they there? Did they occur 
absolutely. And, and there was a purpose in them, but they weren't chasing the high of those emotional experiences. Cause certainly you see people, as we'll see in the next couple of chapters, blind people are being given their sight. Lame people are being healed. That's incredible stuff. That's the stuff many people now try to fabricate. It's incredible. But those aren't the things that it says that they persisted in, that they were devoted to. They were helpful. The signs and wonders were awe-inspiring. But they weren't what these new believers were devoted to. Wonders and signs weren't meant to be the end of the Christian faith They were instead supposed to direct people to the object of Christian faith, right? The the newly resurrected and exalted Jesus Christ. That was the point. The point of a church gathering wasn't to see a bunch of people healed. Does that happen here in Acts? Yes, but that's not the point. The point is to introduce people to Jesus, to preach the gospel, to let the word and the spirit do the work. Paul, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, says that the household of God, the church, is built on the foundation of these apostles. So what the apostles were, were doing and preaching was important. The church kind of springboards off of those things. But who's the cornerstone? Jesus. Christ is the cornerstone. Remember, too, Matthew chapter 28, Jesus in the Great Commission. You guys are familiar with that text? He says, go make disciples, baptize them, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. So in Acts chapter 2, we get to witness Peter's obedience to Jesus, don't we? And we see in the next chapter or so, we see John join in and they start preaching and sharing. And then all the believers are preaching. We see their obedience to Jesus, not only in Matthew 28, but as, as was mentioned in our MMO video this morning, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where he says, you'll be my witnesses here. And then the circles get bigger and expand to the end of the age. They were teaching everything that Jesus had commanded. Now, before we work through these four things that are mentioned here, I, I, I think it's important that we don't become like dogmatic or or rigid about these things mentioned uh, and think that they have to be the only thing that describe the church. But I absolutely think that we should be influenced and motivated by what this early church did and experienced here. And so we want to, we want to work through these things. It says they devoted themselves. What was first to, to this, the apostles teaching these new believers were persistent in gathering, not to have a worship experience, not to have a potluck dinner, oh man, not to have a potluck dinner, they, they gathered and they were persistent and excited about gathering to hear the word of God preached, the apostles' teaching. This is what fueled them. The experiences of the signs and the wonders weren't all that there was to the Christian life. And they saw it and they knew it. And they wanted more. They were diligent in learning the word of God preached by the apostles. They had been changed, right? And so their devotions had changed. Their desires had changed. They couldn't be content going on with life like they used to. The spirit had transformed them. He had done something incredible in them. 3,000 plus people all now together 
And he gave them new desires, new devotions, new loves. So these people were filled with the Spirit, and that drove them not to seek out worship experiences or these highs, if you will, but it drove them deeper into studying the Word, the teachings of Jesus Christ. As Peter and John and the other disciples and apostles, they preached and they did it faithfully. These believers, seemingly, by the way that this is laid out, they just couldn't, they couldn't get enough. Think back to your own conversion experience. Because there was a point in your life where you did not know Jesus. And there's a point when, if you've been saved, you do. And I, I imagine at that transitional point, there was a way that you just, you felt that. Right? You just could not get enough. Now sometimes that, that wanes in different seasons of life, but there are moments when we feel that, don't we? In our very souls, we're like, I gotta, I gotta read more. I gotta hear that again, and we're just devouring the Word of God and the teachings of Jesus. That's, that's what this was describing. They gathered to hear the preaching of the Word. Now I, I can't say this for certain, but I think that there's, a reason why this is listed first here. Because there's some importance to this. The apostles teaching. Uh, and I, I think it's, you'll see as we go, there's fellowship involved, there's breaking of bread, there's praying. How would they do all of those things properly if they didn't understand from the teaching of the word of God? And so there's, I think, a, some importance to seeing this first in the list. Now, I was reading and studying this week, and I heard or read the phrase, when you get filled with the Word, you get filled with the Spirit. Think about that for just a minute. When you get filled with the Word of God, you get filled with the Spirit. Now, I don't mean to imply that these things are like mutually exclusive where you can only have one or the other at a time, but I think instead they play together. They work together. You can, you can be filled with the Spirit and filled with the Word, and that's the point. That's the idea. They work in tandem. The more you submit and know the Word, the more you will walk in the Spirit. That makes sense, I, I think. I hope so. I also don't mean to imply that Christians are somehow lacking Something that they still need to be filled, filled with. Something that they don't have that they need to have. Each believer is given the Holy Spirit at the moment that they believe. Peter has already said this in verse 38. He said that these new Christians received the gift of the Holy Spirit. There was nothing else that needed to be done to receive that. They, they were given it. At salvation. Paul explains in Romans chapter 8. That Christians are in the Spirit if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in them. He says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, He says, the Spirit is alive. Spirit is life. If you have Jesus, you have the Spirit. So continually gathering to hear the Word of Christ preached gave this newly emerging church Life. It brought them life. They loved it. Now I think that there's the opposite of that. There's a harmful idea floating around in some churches and around some pastors' heads 
that biblical preaching and solid doctrine are less important than other things in church life. We can be tempted to think that what we what will draw people through our doors is a huge variety of different programs for every age group or updated and expensive decor, the best sound system, the right lighting, the right blend of coffee, or the best selection of donuts. That'll really bring people. I can tell it would bring some of you. It would bring me. I love donuts. But those things are not what a lost world needs from the church. A lost world, and specifically, as we see here, a bunch of new converts, they need to be taught the word of God. They don't need the fanciest chairs to sit in. There's nothing wrong with having nice things. But they don't need, you don't need that. In fact, some of the most emerging churches in areas of the world where it's not allowed don't have any of the stuff that we have right now. They don't literally, literally don't have a seat to sit on, a light to look with, or any of those things. And yet, the Spirit is moving. Now, the Spirit, the Word of God can be taught in a church building. It can be taught in a home. You can teach it to your kids in the car, and I hope that you are. You can teach it at the lake. You can teach the Word of God just about anywhere. In fact, we're called to do that. Especially as parents, we're called to teach these things to our kids in most every area of life. But at the core of any healthy congregation is a vibrant exposition of God's word and a love for it. Pastor's job is not to tell you what you want to hear, but what you need to hear. I think many of us understand that. Sometimes it's a pastor's job to remind you of the unending love of God. We'll never leave you or forsake you. And sometimes it's the pastor's job to remind you to cut it out and die to yourself. Either way, believers need the spirit and the word to keep pressing onward and upward. And this reveals something else that I think we find in the text. The church delights in the continued study of the word of God. We delight in it. We delight in the continued study of the word of God. Glance forward to verse 30 or 46. We'll talk about this more next week, but these believers gathered together to do this willingly day by day. Now again, I don't think we need to be unyielding here and insist that the church gathers every, every single day like is described here, but I think it should certainly cause us to pause and consider, do I look forward to gathering with the church to study God's word regularly? Or do I look for any excuse to get out of it, to avoid it, to skip this week? I'm tired. I've got big plans this afternoon. I need to prepare for. Do I look forward to gathering regularly with the church to dig into and study God's word? Desiring and delighting in studying the word together is one of the signs of life that this text points to. Because I think that's what this is describing. Signs of life in the church. First thing, do I desire and delight in studying the word of God regularly? Look at the second thing in verse 42. After the apostles' teaching, what did they devote themselves to? The fellowship. Now, I don't 
mean to pick on donuts because I like donuts. But fellowship is more than just about eating a donut together. It can be that, but that's not all that it includes. It's not just about two friends having donuts. Christian fellowship is more than just a social gathering. Okay? The kind of fellowship that's described here is the active cooperation and participation in a common interest. They were already studying the Word of God together. They were devoted to the fellowship. The common interest here for the early church was primarily the teaching of God's Word and being together, and they loved it. They delighted in it. But part of the beauty of the church is that when people submit to the teachings and authority of Christ, they grow closer together. I was reading uh, an article of some stuff by Adrian Rogers this week, and he talked about this idea of Christian fellowship, and he equated it to tuning pianos. I don't know much about tuning pianos, um, but if you if you have a a piano, not a keyboard like this, but a real piano that has strings, I don't know if you knew that, a piano is a stringed instrument. It's actually got uh, steel strings, sort of like a guitar, but inside is what's oftentimes a cast iron uh, kind of a plate or something big that all the tuning pegs for all the different strings attach to. And then the strings get wound around them. And you can guess that the, the bassier notes have a bigger string, and then they get smaller. Piano strings are really big in general. But you can imagine that if I was to try to tune a piano, and I'm starting on the bass note with the biggest string, and I get that thing tweaked just right, well, what has that done to that plate that all the other pegs are attached to? It's affected it, right? So by the time I get to the very highest notes on the piano, there's a good chance that the bass note that was right at the beginning isn't right anymore. And so from what I understand, it's virtually impossible to tune a piano and then tune another piano to that first piano because there's so much that goes into tuning these things and the variances and all that changes as you're tuning it. The tension on one string affects the pitch on so many others, and there's a lot of variables. So what's the solution? Will you use something like a tuning fork? Now, somebody with really good ear and pitch, they can do that. Piano tuners need that. They use that tuning fork, they get the pitch, and then they tune those strings to those notes. And so if you've got a tuning fork that that displays or resonates the same note, you can tune two different pianos together perfectly. But you can't tune from one piano to another piano. And this is what Agent Rogers points out and the reason why. He says, when you're in tune with Jesus and I'm in tune with Jesus, then you're going to be in tune with me and I'm going to be in tune with you. That's what happens when we seek God together. Right? So, so your goal isn't to tune yourself to me. Because I'm not in tune all the time. And I'm not going to tune myself to you because it's the same reason. So what do we do? Well, I think, I hope that it's pretty obvious. We tune ourselves to the outside standard of Jesus Christ, of His Word. Not to, not to me, not to you, not to maybe even our church, not to that church, but Jesus Christ and His Word. Now, the more that we're submitting to that, the more that we're resonating with 
the tune of Jesus, the more that we're going to resonate and be in tune with one another and with other churches who preach the same. Christ and his word, those things are the tuning fork. And so they make us in tune with one another, and that's fellowship. It's another beauty of the gospel displayed in the local church is that Christ is our common tuning fork, our common denominator, the thing that we all are united to. So it doesn't matter if we're young or we're old. It doesn't matter if we're a factory worker or a business owner. It doesn't matter if we have a doctorate in education or if we're have no college experience. It doesn't matter any of these things. Christians have been saved by the same blood, baptized into the same spirit and are part of the same eternal family of God. That's what unites us. Devotion to Jesus is what defines Christian fellowship. And involved in that fellowship is the third thing. Luke adds... He says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and then also to the breaking of bread. Almost every Bible scholar I looked at this week understands that this breaking of bread involves the Lord's Supper. If you remember, right before Jesus died, he instituted this with his disciples. This would have been a natural thing for them to do together. Now, this kind of breaking of bread probably involved some other sharing of meals. I don't think they had donuts, but they had something that they were eating together because they were, they were together day by day. They were together all the time. They were feeding each other. They were sharing. They were having these things in common. But they were surely celebrating the Lord's Supper together too. Because remember, Jesus is what identifies them with one with another. Even when you add 3,000 new people into the mix... They all had the same common source, the same common tuning fork, Jesus Christ and his word and the apostles teaching. And so that's what brought them together and they broke bread together. Remember, these these folks weren't that far removed from being with Jesus. I mean, we're just talking a few weeks here where they were literally walking with him in his resurrected body. And just a few weeks or just a few days before that, he was with them physically before his death, instituting this sort of thing in the Lord's Supper. I just imagine as these, as this, this young early church is getting together, probably in their homes, sometimes in the temple, they're sharing food together, having the Lord's Supper, celebrating that. I just imagine that they could close their eyes, some of them, and see Jesus hanging on the cross. They were living that close to the time when he was crucified, but they didn't want to forget what Jesus had done. And so they take the Lord's Supper. They share in that. They remember that as Jesus instructed them to, and the disciples, the apostles, they led them in that. And surely they could close their eyes and see. And I'm sure that they were, they were seeing his, his burial tomb, that upper room where they were hiding. For Peter, maybe he remembered his denial of Christ. But I don't think they stuck on that too long. I think they remembered what he had done, but they also remembered the spirit that was moving in their midst. Uh, Bible commentator John Phillips said something really interesting. It's in your notes. He says, Baptism illustrates our death with Christ. The breaking of bread illustrates his death for us. So is the taking and receiving of the bread and the juice 
when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, is it just something else to do? Is it just a pre-lunch snack? Or does it bind you together with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ here in the church? Because that's what it's supposed to do. It's not designed to fill you up physically. It's designed to remind you of the sacrifice of Christ and to remind you of the beautiful family in which he's placed you. The Lord's Supper is supposed to be, according to what Paul says, a time of reflection, a reflection of Jesus, reflection of my own heart, of possible reconciliation within the body. He says, go and make things right with your brother or your sister. It's certainly supposed to be a celebration of being adopted into the family of God, into the church. If those things aren't happening when we take the Lord's Supper together, which we'll do next week, if those things aren't happening, then we need to really evaluate what we're doing and why we're doing it. This is another sign of life in the church is are we coming to the, to the Lord's table with the right heart? with the right perspective. Fourthly, the last thing that's in this list in verse 42, it says that they devoted themselves to uh, the apostles teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and then to the prayer, to prayers, to, to prayer. This is the last one mentioned here, but we know that prayer has been a part of the early church, even before chapter two comes in the spirit comes in in dramatic fashion look back at chapter 1 verse 14 along with jesus mother and brothers the disciples were with one accord devoting themselves to prayer chapter 1 verse 24 that says when they were replacing judas they went to the lord in prayer they gave it to god the early christians prayed i think because they were convinced that god heard them (laughs) It's really a simple kind of a a thought, isn't it? And really, I think prayer in its very essence humbles us. Uh, And it humbles us because we're taking this to the Lord saying, I can't do anything with this. My heart is broken. This person needs help. I can't fix it. I need help. I can't fix me, Lord. So we're, we're humbling ourselves saying... God, outside of us, we need rescue. <laughs> we need your saving. We need your intervention here. And these early Christians, they, they, they just believed in prayer because they knew that God heard them. And they didn't need to cast lots anymore either because they had the Holy Spirit. He was their comforter. He would convict them of sin. He would lead them into truth. Not long before, Jesus had told them in John 14 that if they asked anything according to his will, that the Father would give it to them. So now they're just kind of practicing what Jesus preached, right? That day by day, they're gathering together and they're praying, God, intervene here. We need your help here. Spirit, move in this situation. Move in us. Help us to stand firm for you. You can imagine if you know the book of Acts and what they get into, some of the prayers that they were probably praying for one another. God, give us perseverance. Help us to stand strong in the face of resistance. So this is another sign of life. Are you active in praying? Convinced that God hears you? Here's another, maybe more convicting question. When the church gathers together for prayer, are you excited to join? 
Do you prioritize it? Too often, I think that we excuse ourselves from prayer with other Christians because, well, to be perfectly blunt, we're either not convinced that it's worth our time or we think somebody else will pray for it and we don't need to. These early Christians were convinced that praying together was important. Are you? This is part of the reason and motivation for why we spend the first Sunday of the month in our Sunday school time, we have for a couple of years now, in prayer. We will be praying uh, in different fashions on Sunday mornings in the weeks to come, as you'll see. But it says that there was an effect on the world around them when these Christians were devoted to these things, right? They were devoted to the apostles, to the word of God, the preaching of the word of God. They were devoted to the fellowship. They were devoted to breaking of bread and they were devoted to prayers and being devoted and loving and persisting, persisting in these things resulted in something around them. Look at verse 43. And awe came upon every soul. Awe came upon every soul. John MacArthur in his New Testament commentary says this. He says, the life of this first fellowship was so genuine and spiritually powerful that everyone, whether inside or outside the church, kept feeling a sense of awe. They weren't awed by the church because of its buildings, its programs, or anything reflecting human ability, but by the supernatural character of its life. Are there signs of life in the church? Do we see these things lived out? Do, are we excited about these things? Are we moved by these things? The Spirit of God was moving here, inside and outside the church, but everyone knew where the power was really coming from. They knew. They were awed by what was going on. The Greek word for that, being filled with awe, is the Greek word phobos, which you could see where our word phobia comes from, which of course just means fear, sometimes terror. But this isn't like you're terrified from watching a horror movie. It's not the kind of fear that this is talking about here. This was a fear of God, a fear that comes from certainly great respect and reverence, a fear of understanding the power that God possesses. And how that affects us. This same kind of fear is talked about in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. You probably remember that story. They bear false witness to the Spirit and literally fall over dead. We'll get there after a while in the text. But that's what happens. And it says as a result of this, I mean, they're literally dragging the bodies out of the church. And it says that fear struck the people. Great fear fell upon all the people. But what's interesting here in chapter 2 and there in chapter 5 is that when this kind of fear comes upon the people of God, it actually brings them together. This is interesting. Just look at verse 43 and 44. Of Acts 2, and awe came upon every soul, and many signs and wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And hear this, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. 
Now flip forward to Acts 5. This is that story that I just mentioned. Acts 5 verses 11 and 12. It says, and great fear came upon the whole church. That's the same, same word, awe and fear. It's the same word. Great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. So when great fear came upon the people of God, it didn't divide them. You didn't have people arguing that God was too harsh about Ananias and Sapphira. There were no church splits over this issue. It brought them closer together. They were all together, it says. They had all things in common. Now notice, too, that great signs and wonders were done in both of these instances when great awe came upon the, the, the people. But the result wasn't in exalting the apostles. The, the, the result was the edification and growth of the church. The beauty of it, the, the depth of those relationships and of their understanding. Back in chapter 2, verse 43, it says, All who believed were together and had all things in common. Now, this is not unusual in Jewish culture. They were very um, hospitality-oriented. And you can see that through the law. There was a lot of Old Testament regulations about what you did with a visitor and a sojourner and, and these kinds of things. Uh, especially during times of feasts like Pentecost, Jews were supposed to be extra hospitable. So visitors were supposed to be welcomed into their homes, offered a bed, uh, offered meals, that sort of thing. And there was no expectation of being reimbursed for that. You just did it because of the kindness that God showed you, Israel, you show to others. Christian, the kindness that God shows you, you show to others. See, that makes sense. It would seem that the Christians in the first century here in the book of Acts, they took this tremendous feast time hospitality and made it an everyday kind of a thing. They had all things together in common. Now, I understand, or I hope to understand, I hope you understand, we're not talking about communism here. Okay, we're not talking about where everybody shares everything equally in that sense. Uh, the, the select few at the top weren't controlling where everything went. That's not the setup that was here. Instead, these early believers, they just held their possessions and their property ready for use for the common good as, as was needed. We'll see this more in the text for next week. We'll see that, and later on in, in I think chapter four, it talks about how some of them even gave up like property to help their fellow believers. People that some of, they maybe just met them when the 3,000 were added to the church and they were ready to sacrifice for these folks. It's mentioned there in Acts chapter four. That's what it says. They had everything in common. Now, again, I don't think we should necessarily look at exactly how this early church functioned and demand a mirror image in our churches today. That's not what I'm trying to say. But it surely is an example to us and a motivation to us on what genuine love and care looks like in the body of Christ. Maybe we ought to try and model this a little bit more. These people, they loved one another deeply. I mean, they were ready to go to prison for one another. And some of them do. 
They're ready to sell possessions to give the proceeds to one another. They sacrifice for one another. They hurt when others hurt. They rejoiced when others rejoiced. They humbled themselves and considered others before themselves. You know what that sounds a lot like? The church, right? Where else in the world do you see this? Now, there are some benevolent organizations. Don't get me wrong. There are some people that do some incredible things, but no, none of them to the depth of what the church is called to do. None of them in these kinds of ways. This was the true body of Christ at work. Each member caring for one another. Each member nourishing the other. I think what we're seeing here in Acts chapter 2 is an answer to Jesus' prayer in John 17. It's considered the high priestly prayer. He's praying for Christians. This is what he says. Chapter 17 of John, verse 20 and 21. He says, he's talking, Jesus praying, and he says, I don't ask for these only, talking his, about his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. The 3,000 at Pentecost, you and me, brothers and sisters, today, that they may all be one, Jesus says, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. And hear this, so that the world may believe that you sent me. So what's the point of togetherness, of unity, of being one, so that the world would look and see Jesus? A spirit-filled church demonstrates Christ to the world. Both in what they believe and stand for, and in what they do, and who they are. So we evaluate these signs of life in our own church, in our own life. Am I devoted to the teachings of Jesus? That's what the apostles were preaching Everything that Jesus had commanded them. Am I devoted to that? Do I have a passion and a desire and even a delight in hearing the word of God read and preached and expounded upon? Am I devoted to the fellowship? That could involve inviting a a family or a friend over for a meal, for sure. But Christian fellowship is more than just eating and filling our stomachs. It's about being satisfied with the true bread of life. Am I devoted to the fellowship? Am I devoted to the breaking of bread? When we come to the Lord's table in the Lord's Supper, am I coming with the right heart and attitude? Am I devoted to prayer? And then the last question I would just ask us to evaluate this morning is this. Am I devoted to these things together with my church family? Because we should do these things individually. Um, We should eat with individuals. We should uh, invite them into our home. We should be devoted to the teachings of Christ in our own personal time of study and worship. But are we doing these things together? Because when we do them together, it has a different kind of impact on the world. Jesus prayed for it. it. We see it in Acts chapter 2. We see awe come upon every soul. We see people examining and realizing there's something different here. This is something unique. And we'll see more about this next week. Encourage you with this word. Devotion 
to these things that we've talked about, to these signs of life, devotion to these things, truly demonstrates Christ to the world? Is that what I'm demonstrating? Is that what our church is demonstrating? Beyond the programs, beyond the seats, beyond the paint on the walls, beyond the carpet on the floor and the donuts on the shelves. Sorry for the donut comment. Beyond all those things, are we devoted to these signs of life? And I'll say them one more time and then we'll pray. Are we devoted to the word of God and his teaching of it and the teaching of it? Are we devoted to one another in the fellowship? Are we devoted to, to loving one another and breaking of bread and, and reconciling with one another over the Lord's Supper, celebrating his life and death for us? And are we devoted to praying and praying together? There's lots of opportunities to demonstrate these things. I pray as as you are given these opportunities, that the Lord, through the Spirit, would motivate you to get involved, maybe to bust you out of your comfort zone that you're not really good with. Maybe it would mean talking to Roanne and and encouraging a young adult that you don't know very well. Maybe it would mean getting involved in one of the ministries here with the youth or the children. It would mean a number of different things, but as we reflect in our last song together and as you hopefully take this with you into lunch and into your relaxation time this afternoon, that God through his spirit would be moving in you, convicting you where needed, but reminding you of the beautiful place that you have in the body of Christ here at Ramsey Creek. Let's pray. Lord, uh, the body of Christ looks like it does because you are the head. We aren't worried about the end result because we know that you are the good shepherd. You are the chief shepherd and you care for our souls better than anyone could. And yet, Lord, you have called us to love one another well to demonstrate the oneness that we have because of Jesus through the church to the world that Jesus might be made known and glorified. And so we do this for his name's sake, for his renown. I pray that we evaluate the signs of life that we've talked about today. Convict us where we need it, Lord. Use that, that, that word, Holy Spirit that operates as a a double-edged dagger to, to cut through the stuff that needs to be removed from our hearts and lives. Shape us more, heal us up according to you and your will. Lord, so that we might join together with brothers and sisters, link arms together in demonstrating your love and beauty to the world around us, Lord. Because it needs it so bad. Because we need it so bad. Thank you for these things and for doing your work that only you can do in Jesus' name.